Hello, I'm Paul Farron and welcome to the Film Ireland podcast. The third international film conference, Hitchcock's Vertigo 65th anniversary, is being held from the 21st to the 23rd of August in Trinity College, Dublin. Ahead of the conference, I got to speak to one of the conference guests, author and scholar Murray Pomerantz, about Hitchcock's classic. The conference also includes a special screening of Vertigo in the Lighthouse Cinema in Dublin on Sunday 20th of August at 8pm. I have a, a wonderful Murray Pomerance has kindly given his time. Murray is going to be over here in August for Vertigo 65. Uh, it's an amazing event. Um, it's a 65 years of Vertigo, a film that kind of was greeted in a very non-plus fashion by most critics in America. Uh, what do you think? Uh, how, does, how does it gather so much snow on the mountain, as it were, and become such a, a phenomenal film for critics and fans? Well, there's probably a simple answer to that, uh, Paul. I think it it has to do with the, the birth of uh, film scholarship and film criticism tied to film scholarship in the 1970s. And then a certain amount of interest in Hitchcock shown by people like William Rothman uh, from the University of Miami. He was one of the original writers who made a big deal of Hitchcock and so did Charles Barr, who was at that time, I think, at Warwick University and has retired from there. He's going to be at the conference. Um, so there was a kind of critical attention paid to it. And then it, it became a popular thing to do, at least for film students to watch it. And then the interest kind of spread. The sight and sound uh, notification that it was the best film ever made a couple of years back didn't hurt either. But you know what's interesting? In 1958, when this film came out, there was no critical scholarship about film to speak of. It was incredibly rare, people like James Agee, but very, very rare. And um, people didn't think about films because of critical articles. When you when you opened the newspaper, and it was, in fact, the newspaper, we should say, we have to keep reminding viewers, because there are a lot of young viewers who won't want to come to this, who you know have to get back into that. So it was a newspaper. And when you open the newspaper, if you saw a review of the film, it would have been a blurb, essentially quoting from the press kit that the studio put out to publicize the film. It wasn't somebody independently evaluating the film with only one or two exceptions in North America. America, New York, and Los Angeles. So basically, people were just finding out that it was a mysterious film, that it involved famous movie stars at the time. Kim Novak was very famous. Jimmy Stewart was mega famous at the time. So anything that had Jimmy Stewart in it, you would run to see. So that, that was essentially the attraction at the beginning. And when you say it was nonplussed, I mean, hmm. the audience did not fall over. Let's just say that they have been falling over since. Uh, and now uh, almost everyone falls over. I just heard recently of a group of people, young people who were shown vertigo for the first time about three weeks ago. They went crazy. And this was very exciting because one would have thought, well, you know, it's not one of those action films like the Marvel films. It, you know, it couldn't be further. But no, they, they were totally entranced by it. So it's a very powerful filmic experience. Do you think it stands alone amongst his work or is simply a variation on, on what he was doing up to that point? 
does it stand alone among Hitchcock's films? Well, in a certain way, it stands alone among all films because there is no other film like Vertigo and there's certainly no other Hitchcock film in a way like Vertigo. But there are a tremendous number of very, very powerful Hitchcock films that plunge to the depths in much the same way. So one of my problems was that once I started falling into writing about Hitchcock, it became uh, an unending labyrinth. And there was so much to look at that, you know, isolating Vertigo as just, you know, as somehow the top of the mountain wasn't a very meaningful exercise. So I know in my book, An Eye for Hitchcock, that came out in 2004, I have a long essay on Vertigo, but there are six essays in the book, and this is just the last one. It, it fought against the tradition of what a thriller was doing at the time. There's no true villain of the piece, despite the fact they're there to be the catalyst for the event, for the, for the adventure, if you want to call it that, or the nightmare. And there's no um, comeuppance or anything like that. So it really is about one man's obsession. There are two Hitchcock films that one has to tiptoe through conversations about so you don't ruin them for people who haven't seen it because it is so easy <laughs> you know so of course psycho is one of them and this is the other one why would there we should do a spoiler warning because we might trip into that because i am hoping i'm i know there are people that aren't going to have seen vertigo but they're i hope they're well, i don't hope they're rare but we should warn them that maybe watch this after they've gone to vertigo 65 <laughs> Yeah, or even if they've gone on the 20th at night to uh, the cinema to see it. Exactly. With the yeah, which yeah. is exciting. The chance to see it on the big screen. I've not seen Vertigo on the big screen. I've seen it several times. In fact, I watched it before this as well, a more recent restoration of it as well. And um, it always surprises me. There's always something new in it. And uh, it, it's hard for us to really understand what it meant to watch it at the time. To watch it at that very time is a whole experience in itself, obviously, as it is with any film, I'm sure. Well, um, you know, there are a lot of people um, proselytizing for big screen experience these days and bless them for doing it. But something very few people pay attention to about the big screen is literally magnitude, literally magnitude, not the idea of magnitude or what you can say magnitude does to enhance our experience. I'm talking about the difference be between seeing a human head roughly at the size of uh, your knuckle or smaller and seeing a human head several times the size of your own head so that it's looking like giants. There are giants up there in a world that isn't your world. So the big screen, uh, does have a tendency to magnify one's presence with the film but technically uh, and this is what occurred to me when i saw the restoration on a big screen see the patches of color that make up the design of the shots on a big screen are each much bigger and because they're each much bigger they're more intense and so everything that has a color in Vertigo, and it's a splendid color film, everything that has a color has more color by a factor of about a, about 50. So it's very, very, very rich, in fact, overpowering. And then you have Bernard Herrmann's symphonic musical score, which is, you know, totally addictive. The more I hear it, the more I think, what a genius. I had this conversation with a friend, and he said that shorthand answer to it. I said, do you, do you rate Vertigo as a Hitchcock film? Do you like it? And he said, when I saw it on the big screen, 
that's when it really blew me away. And you kind of, it's it's trying to, it's the it's the kind of man who goes out of the cave trying to explain to everybody in the cave what's outside. You have to see it. <laughs> did did he say to you, your chum? Did he say the words "blew me away"? Yes, he did. Use it more, more or less. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, that's interesting because you see, people who are carried away by vertigo, if you ask them, "Did you like it?" They don't say yes or no. They say things like, it blew me away. I couldn't believe it. It was overwhelming. They really get bigger than, than yes. It's way bigger than yes. Yes becomes irrelevant. The star quality of it as well is, is a huge factor because Hitchcock loves stars. He understood them not just as a, not simply as a marquee thing. He did understand the whole um, emotional experience of wanting to see these people. You know, that's why there seems to be Cary Grant style of films and Jimmy Stewart style. And Stewart was on a dark trek in the 1950s anyway, especially helped along with Anthony Mann. But that has to be one of the darkest films he ever did, where you still managed to maintain a role of a hero. See, in, in, in Naked Spur, which is one of my favorite of the Anthony Mann uh, films, he's ugly and vicious and angry. We never see Jimmy Stewart like this on screen. He's really a hateful man, but he's righteous. It's just you wouldn't be any, want to be anywhere near this man. In Vertigo, he's not like that. It's dark, but it's dark uh, a darkness inhabiting a man that we think of as being wholly decent, friendly, wonderful, in, in need of love. But uh, he's fallen into a very dark pit. The illusory quality, it, it is also about a man obsessed but creating an illusion from an illusion that is never, is always been a sort of a house of straw. Well, the thing with Vertigo is um, it's one thing if you go and watch it, and it's a, it's actually another thing if you watch it again and again and again and again. Because if you watch it again and again and again, you begin to realize what the word again means and how that plays into the film. <laughs> because there's a lot of doing again in vertigo in fact there are many um there are many moments in vertigo that occur more than once but a little differently every time so there's a kind of circling around so very vortical if you it, 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 i'm convinced that if you start watching it you get sucked in and that's probably it you're never going to get out not once you not once that sucks you in you're in there life changing I think also definitely San Francisco is a location that I only know San Francisco through cinema. I've never been there. So oh. it brings a certain quality. <laughs> it brings a quality to it that I don't feel it would have had if it had been said anywhere else. I wrote a piece for the online journal called Movie called Talking Space in Vertigo. And you can find it online if you look my name up and write Talking Space in Vertigo. I'll do that, yeah where I actually went to the locations in San Francisco and talked about how they work. Um, so very simply, San Francisco is hilly and some parts of it are very steeply hilly. So when, as you walk up the street, when you get to the top of the hill, you need to take a breather unless you live there and you're used to this. So like Dublin, for instance, is flat and you're walking along the river. So there's none of that, very little of that kind of flatness in San Francisco. So you're doing a lot of up and down. And in the source novel from which this film was taken, a French novel from the uh, early to mid-1950s called Dans les Morts, um, from, between, from Among the Dead, 
um, this, the, the scene is set both in Paris and in Marseille. Now, Marseille has a little bit of hilliness, but not the parts that are used in the novel. So essentially, the novel's on flat ground. Okay. And what Hitchcock did was to bring in the roller coaster experience of traveling up and down the hills of San Francisco. And there's something a little bit affecting to the body about that. You really are uh, like on a roller coaster. You're not nauseated, but you're on the cusp. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the scene, the following scenes when he's uh, pursuing Kim Novak. Yeah, and again, again, what I love about it, he also, Hitchcock's a master of the film that you have to think backwards and see where he was manipulated. <laughs> and, you know, you realize he's not he's not following. If you if you think he was manipulated, because I remember when I saw this film the first time, I always worry about people seeing something the first time. I think that's what we have to really look at. Um, nobody was manipulating anything. He was uh, he saw this gorgeous object that glowed in the sun and he went to it the way anybody would go to a gorgeous glowing object. He just wanted to get close. And if the object eluded him, he wanted to follow. And so he followed. And we're following with him. We're He's following her. We're following him following her. Uh, without being aware of that, maybe. That's one of the tricks of Vertigo that I think is so charming and also actually so funny that 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 Hitchcock makes us follow the guy who's following without being aware that we're doing that. He truly did understand that embracing of the audience and grabbing them by the collar and taking them places. Absolutely. And he certainly does it in so many beautiful ways in that film. Absolutely. He wanted to um, cause emotional change. Hitchcock's own obsessions, how much do you think they're reflected in that film in, in a unique oh. way, considering it was an adaptation of, of uh, a book? The, the, the returning themes that emerge in Vertigo that were in other films. The issue of moral pronouncement was very important to him. Uh, pointing the finger at someone and saying, you know, it's you. You're responsible. You did it. You didn't do it. You're innocent. You're guilty. That just shows up all over the place again and again and in different configurations. So he's interested in the way people get labeled. But I think in Vertigo, there's a step aside from that, and the interest is more aesthetic. It has to do with the way the eye and the spirit work together to attach themselves to beauty. Because, like, if you look back on the film later, you can. I mean, your audience yes. will next year. If you look back on the film, you'll realize that he actually only needed a beautiful woman, Kim. Extremely beautiful in the film. But he only needed that beauty in order to lure Scotty Ferguson, Jimmy Stewart's character. He needed the beauty as a lure. Mechanically, there's no call for it. Yeah. And of course, in the novel, there's no beauty at all because it's words on a page. Well, you see, I don't think people don't talk about much that I've seen, and that maybe I'm totally wrong, is the woman who is the catalyst for the entire story. Oh, his painter, his designer friend. No, no, no. Her, I want to get to her as well, Midge as oh, well. The one, she, oh, the, oh, the, the, the woman, woman who's, who's thrown out of a tower that he never actually goes and checks out, who's, yeah. we're told, looks quite like Kim Novak for him to get away yeah. with it. Yeah, we are. Yeah, she she tells us that. Yeah. 
Why, was a woman thrown out of the tower in that film? I, I, my memory is that in the flashback, we see that moment where he know we know he can't go up there, and we see it from her point of view when she it, we're realizing. Well, we've kind of realized what we're being confirmed could, that could your memory be wrong? The second Kim Novak is well, is the, is you, the same woman. <laughs> could your memory be wrong? Well, I I look forward to seeing the film with you on the twentieth. Are you going to come? <laughs> and we'll see. <laughs> You're coming close to why you have to tiptoe through this film. Um, and I've done this more than you have, with all due respect. So I know I'm not blaming you. Um, but you just, once you work on Hitchcock for a long time, you get used to finding a way to walk around a scene and say a great deal about it without giving away the um, mm. the mechanism, you know, because he, he was really good at mechanisms. You know that? <laughs> that most definitely. Right? Yeah, uh, I like, still go back and marvel at, at at certain of his films that I really like. I mean, another one of his Jimmy Stewart films, Rear Window, is is filled. It's it's almost like the antithesis of, of that movie. You know, there's a man a who who who's dr- being finally he finally finds desire when his girlfriend goes and does something fucking lunatic, <laughs> and he can't move. Yeah, uh, yeah. so it's trapped. Can move. You know, there's a moment in in Vertigo where. Um, Stewart and Novak have been having a very quiet conversation in his apartment and they're now leaving. So he's essentially escorting her to the door and Hitchcock shoots it from high above looking down. That's the kind of thing he does. Mm. Nobody else would do, nobody else would do that. They would find a way to just get her out the door. But Hitchcock wants to show the two of them from high above as they like little dolls as they march through this space he does that a lot there are a lot of shots in this film that are from high above so uh, tell me this uh, mage is a really interesting character that gets short shrift <laughs> the first time you watch it but when you watch it more and more there's an amazing kind of a uh, sensibility there that tells us more much more about scotty's past than you first realize i think uh, everybody i know adores Midge and nobody I know can figure out what's wrong with him that he didn't marry Midge. <laughs> and I think we're supposed to understand that question too, because uh, she doesn't quite understand it, but we think she's wonderful. So why didn't you marry Midge? But there is the question of, of who turned down who, which we, he leaves ambiguous. He leaves it ambiguous and we have to play with that. Yeah. She's wonderful. She's wonderful, um, especially in this in this scene where he is very ill, and she's comforting him, and where she's trying very hard to comfort him, but he's iller than she thinks, and there's nothing she can do at the time. That's right. She, Even that wonderful. little bit of detective work that she helps with, which you almost think is that where it's going to go, and then it breaks off. It's fantastic, and you know also. This is a character that he he knew exactly how not only how to paint a character, but how long to leave them on the screen. I mean, she only has a couple of scenes, so that when she's gone, you go, "Oh, where's Midge? Where's Midge?" But until until we move into the second act, when oddly enough we don't remember Midge at all. <laughs> you know, when she's gone, she's gone. Well, what drew you to Hitchcock? Initially, how did you suddenly become such a scholar on Hitchcock and interested in writing about him? 
well, I always enjoyed going to Hitchcock movies when I was a kid. I, it was always a pleasure, but I didn't think about them. I just had the pleasure and walked away. Then decades later, one of my students made a presentation and commented on a book about Hitchcock's films called The Art of Alfred Hitchcock by Donald Spoto, which analyzes the films one by one. And uh, I thought that sounded interesting. So I had to look at the book and indeed I could see that the analyses were going past the surface. That's all I really cared about yeah. at that point. So then when I started looking at the films again, I was looking at them from my own point of view, not his, and looking for ways in which the, the, the received analysis hadn't quite done them justice. I'm, I, I'm very wary. I may should have said this at the front, but I'm very, very, very wary of received analysis because it's a form of publicity. You know, it's like an advertisement. Yes. It's not accurate. And it's meant to suck you in, but you don't need it to be sucked in. With Vertigo, the opening credit will suck you in because it's designed optically, literally optically to suck you in. I have to say, as a young when I was young watching films, the first notion of a director was probably someone like Hitchcock. That I knew oh, yeah. there was someone yeah, yeah, sure. behind there who did all those things that created that sensibility, as it were. Yeah, for most people, it was either Hitchcock or John Ford. John Ford, yes, was... right. Okay, you have people have to know that before the nineteen seventies, nobody knew anything about directors aside from these guys or cared what do you mean the director you just waited for the credits to get off the screen so the movie would begin but with hitchcock hitchcock but see hitchcock did a little bit of that well he was a showman he was a showman he played himself up with a caricature he got a funny theme song for his television show he acted like a bit of a buffoon it's all there so you can't not love him but i don't suspect he was that way I doubt it very, very much. Well, I mean, I, I, I know enough about some of the things he did with people he worked with because I've talked to people he worked yeah. with. So he was very serious about his work. You know, the, the men had to wear jacket and tie on the set. You know that. Yes, that's right, yeah. All he he was quite particular about that, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, all the men, the whole crew, jacket yeah. and tie. Um, except, for, except for when they were shooting... Men who knew too much in Marrakesh because it was 125 degrees and they couldn't bear it. And he himself was sitting in an air-conditioned car with his just his shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> he did the whole thing from this air-conditioned car. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day are out there probably getting their makeup retouched every three seconds, I would guess. And he's in the car. He, he cried off on, on location filming as the 60s crept in, I think. He loved to film in the studio. He liked studio shooting. Yeah. And there are a number of te technical reasons why you can do things in the studio more artfully and easily. But um, he also loved travel. So you could do travel if you do location shooting. So he did a lot of location shooting. I mean, Vertigo is a great deal of it is shot in San Francisco, but not all of it. He knew how to find really good set designers. Yeah, yeah. Really good set design. I read somewhere that even at the moment in the in in the joint when they go see the giant redwoods, one of those trees is an actual prop. <laughs> well, the tree that's the prop is the is the cut tree that's, that's the right. Map. Yeah. Okay, but you know, I don't know. I, I could talk about that just briefly if you think you're yeah, your please. audience. 
Well, there's a scene that takes place in one of the parks near San Francisco that's filled with redwood trees. There's one on the north side, and then there's one on the south side. The one on the north side is Muir Woods, and the one on the south side is Big Basin. And they shot this in Big Basin. So when you go in there, it's fairly dark because these trees are hundreds of feet high and they're very close together. So they form a canopy that blocks out the sunlight. So you don't get direct sunlight coming down to the ground in these places. But Hitchcock wanted to have these angelic beams of, mm -hmm. of sun beaming. Now, so that's all arc lamps that they had to bring in powered by a generator but with shots that only lasted a few seconds because the state's park authority saw that this the arc lamps were a fire hazard and they didn't want to burn down the redwoods so you could only have them on for a shot for just a little bit and then they had to go off for a while and then you had to work out the lighting so you could get the depth of exposure that they have because it's remarkable it's really one of the most gorgeous scenes ever filmed just that alone yes it's like a visit to the Redwoods, really. Well, it made me want to go to them, frankly. <laughs> me too. And when I, when I did it, I thought, oh, my God, I'm here. <laughs> so, so tell me a little bit more about the event and what you're bringing it to yourself and wh what people can expect. Well, he's got three days of talks, morning and afternoon, starting at about nine and ending at about five with only an hour for lunch. It's like being in a factory. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was looking at it myself. And all kinds of people from all over the place. And I see your, your schedule for Wednesday, 1130 is, is Murray. Wednesday. Yes, at 1130. But he's got Charles Barr talking, uh, which is remarkable because Charles is one of the really esteemed senior scholars about Hitchcock. He wrote a book called English Hitchcock, which everybody should get. And he wrote the BFI Classics book on Vertigo. So okay. it will be interesting to hear what he says. David Sterritt's coming from Maryland to give a talk. He wrote a book on Hitchcock many years ago. Many, many people. Dan Varndell's coming from the UK. And then a lot of people whose names I don't recognize, but they're from all over the place. It's a pretty amazing three days. It's unbelievable. It and, and then, of course, don't forget, it, it, the, the Lighthouse screening on the Sunday, the 20th. Will you be at that yourself? I'm thinking about it. Um, yeah. Will you I, make I have it on time? Seen, uh, will I make it on time? Because uh, that's an issue. Um, I'm interviewing Jim Katz, you know, on Tuesday afternoon. Jim Katz and Bob she, Harris did oh, the restoration. Yeah. Okay. That is what they, that's on, on 3.30 uh, Tuesday. And that's all in Trinity. And, and they're, for people out there, they're beautifully priced. They're, they're not expensive events. I, I'm looking forward to it anyway. I'm definitely going to make it to screening. And I'd love to hopefully meet you when you're over. I would love to meet you for coffee if you've got time. Ditto. Tell me about your book. You've got a book coming out. It's a four, it was the fourth of your books on Hitchcock. Am I right? It's the fourth of this series. There are actually a couple of other, there's three other books on Hitchcock that aren't part of this um this is the hitchcock quartet so it began with an eye for hitchcock and then volume two is a dream of hitchcock volume three is a voyage with hitchcock and volume four which is in paperback on the first of august is a silence from hitchcock each one of the books has six films in long discursive essays and um they're meant to be a kind of unit 
and what, what what is this book then? What, what what are you looking at? What is there a particular aspect of Hitchcock that will come to the fore in this volume? Um, I, I'm kind of interested in how silence plays a role in his work, but also there are many kinds of silence, not just failing to speak. So I'm just interested in taking angles on silence, but also part of the project was to weave in some important films I hadn't dealt with yet. You know, there are more than 50 films, and if you're going to only do 24 of them, it's pretty brutal. Yeah, yeah. But he said, and the thing is, he was a prolific silent filmmaker as well. He was. And he did interesting things with the medium uh, uh, that I think... You know, there's all, there's all the people say that if silent, if film had a bit longer without audio, would it have had a big effect on its evolution as a medium? Huh. If it wasn't, so people feel it was hampered by audio rather than helped along by audio. I don't know what you think about that. I, I think that's a kind of a philosophical aesthetic judgment that people want to make now. But you know, in 1927, this was a question of Warner Brothers wanting to figure out how to make some more money. Yeah. That's true. It's all about money. I mean, filmmaking is mostly, you know, about money. There are filmmakers who claim not to care about it. It was the man said, it's show business. No show, no business. <laughs> well, it's a very expensive procedure. Like, you know, of course. It's, it's not like writing a book yeah. or paint, painting a canvas. And Murray, you'll be over for the week? Almost all of the week. Certainly the first part of the first heavy part of that week. Yes. And what, what, what do you bring into your own talk? What, 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 what are you going to bring to that talk yourself? Give us a, ta a, a taste. I, I never tell anyone ahead of time, but I will give you the title, and it is... Tease them, tease them. <laughs> Ferguson is reminded. Okay, I like it. I like it. Murray, I think that's great. I think that's lovely for what we're doing. Um, I would love the opportunity to interview you again sometime about all things just Hitchcock, if you're interested. Whatever you like. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really hope I'll meet you when you get over. Paul, thank you so much. This has been fun. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Visit vertigo65.com for information and tickets. Mm -hmm.